Hi, everybody. I want to welcome you to Beyond the Red Door. This is our second podcast, and the podcasts are coming out of the poems with meditations that we've done at St. Mark's Church in Jackson Heights in New York City, which is to my right. And to my left is Soren Stockman, whose poems and whose life we're going to delve into a little bit in the next 20 to 30 minutes and hope that you enjoy it. Uh, The Red Door series is something that was created out of the pandemic when I moved to Jackson Heights in New York City to reopen St. Mark's after the rector had tragically died of COVID-19. And the church opened eight months later and we started these uh, just reading one poem 10 minutes of silence and reading the poem again and a chance to um, combine spirituality religion and poems and see what would happen when we did this inside of a church setting it was kind of a crazy idea but it seems to have taken off and brought a lot of people into the neighborhood and is now a series that has been adopted by St. John's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, in a couple of churches in the Northeast, and also the um, Anglican Cathedral in Vancouver, British Columbia. So, here we are. Shalom. Shalom. I'm super excited to really not talk so much about the Red Door series and certainly not about myself, but about you. And I'm very proud of you, Soren, and uh, your talent and this first book. It's such a beautiful moment when a first book comes into the world and a a new voice is on the horizon. And um, I've looked at this book over the years and have really really love it and appreciate it. So I want to ask you a few questions about yourself, your life, mm-hmm. and then maybe we can read um, this this poem and the Morning in Wyoming poem and maybe that poem um, about your brother at the end. Great. How does that sound? That sounds fabulous to me. So just tell me, us, Jackson Heights, about you. Gosh, well... Thank you for having me, first of all. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you. I adore you, as you know. I don't know that. You that lost, let me make it clear. <laughs> I adore Spencer. Oh. I adore you. Spencer has been a great guide and sort of life mentor in a friend way. Not like academic, half-stepping mentor. Like real... An example of a life lived within one's passion and language, and I, I appreciate you very much, and I appreciate what you've done to bring my book into itself, because uh, you were instrumental in that process, as you may recall, but as I will never forget. So I'm, I'm happy to be here, um, happy to talk about my life and myself. I'm just going to be comfortable with that. Because I have to start doing that now. And um, so to begin, I come from a family of artists. And my mother in particular um, has, a, has the writer's eye. 
And I think of a writer's eye as the space between your mind and your perception and how rich that space becomes when infused with your sense of imagination. Okay, and your mom is? And my mother is uh, Jane Ann Phillips. Right. She's a, uh, an incredible writer, my favorite writer, personally. Um, she would hate being mentioned. So Really? Oh, sorry, Mom. Sorry, um, Mom. I'm, I'm happy to mention your mom, whose books I have read. I guess my question to you, as the child of a, a novelist, mm-hmm. a, 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 talk about that a little bit, growing up with a novelist, seeing a writer write, mm-hmm. wanting to do that, and also um, veering towards poetry, which to me is so different from writing a novel so different yeah well i i grew up with writing and the writing life being a normal path and didn't have to go through a process of normalizing or even accepting my own passion for writing because a lot of writers do have to do that if it's not something that they're familiar with uh, if they've not had an example of seeing a writer go about their life and go about their work many people have to sort of come to terms with it as something viable I never have questioned its viability I've always felt it is incredibly integral to uh, a society and, and a lot of that experience and perception of writing as something not only normal but invaluable comes from my uh, the times that I've spent outside of the United States because the United States has a very different perception of poetry and its role in society than much of the world does. Yeah. Um, and so there's a kind of very intimate beginning in my home of writing being a part of my life and then there's a very far-reaching scope in which I've seen it in action. Was your mom writing like every day? Was it was the time set aside for that and the door was closed? Or what did it look like? Yeah, yeah, there was, she had um, a place where she wrote that was her office and she would close the door and do her work and I know that she really felt torn um, at times, but modeled a commitment to one's passion and one's and an honoring of one's own work um, by taking that time to herself and to her to kind of separate herself and isolate uh, time spent with her work writing. Right. Okay. And writing of fiction is like, to my mind, so it's so different from poetry writing because with fiction writing you need or non-fiction writing. I've done non-fiction writing and gone away to residencies, as have you, where I had an extended length of time to hold in my mind this larger idea, which I guess I think of as fiction or, or non-fiction and thinking about like structural elements, yeah. for, which for me are hard to hold in my head with a life that's broken up with a million different things that are going on every day. Mm. However, poetry, you know, I'm almost 
60 now, and uh, so and been in the in the public with writing and poetry for the last no, I guess like 20 years since I was in my 40s. Right. So, and I've just continued to work and um, write poetry whenever I can. Like yes. it's just sort of I do it whenever I can, on the fly. I don't go home and close the door and nobody um, talks to me all day. So. Why? What? What drew you to poetry? It, that was the long way to get to that. But yeah. so different from what you were seeing. Mm-hmm. I guess I think of it as so different, but maybe it's not. Sort of. I mean, it is very different to make a poem than it is to make anything else that I've ever made. Um, I've written some prose, but I wouldn't say an incredible amount. But I, when my mother was writing. Her fiction, she, first of all, she began her career as a poet. And her fiction has, all, she's always been, a lot of my favorite prose writers are poets oh. who just write prose. But it's, yeah. you can see them sort of, there's sort of a square peg and a round hole, and that tension I'm often attracted to. So, you know, poets like Dennis Johnson are, you know, write some of my favorite prose. Um, what what how where did it start, I mm. guess, before we lead up to you reading this poem, like why poetry? I mean yeah. people have asked me that question or where did it start? So for me I was in high school, I had a high school English teacher, I was in love with her, and I that all that and being a teenager mm. and then reading Sylvia Plath, I was just hooked mm. and I was like I couldn't get enough of it. Was there a moment like that for you? There were several, I would say, but I remember very vividly being 11 years old on a school field trip. We went into some wooded area, a forest. I don't remember the context of what we were doing or why, but we had, I remember I was 11 and I remember sitting on a rock and there was no one around me and... I had a notebook in my hands and I wrote a poem called The Woods, sort of unprompted. Um, it was not something I decided to do. It was sort of a natural extension of my inner life at the time. And it always, it felt resonant to me, even at that young age, I felt like I had stood up within my own life in a way. I felt as though I was more actively participating in my own mind and in my life. Uh, I felt that it crossed the bridge between the interior life and world, especially that is so incredibly rich as a child, mm -hmm. that, that I, I found a bridge between my inner life and the life outside of my body the world outside of my body. I felt that I crossed that plane and it was not always easy for me to cross that plane when I was a kid. I was very interior sometimes. Um, Mr. Coconut. Bless you, Mr. Uh, Coconut. Uh, uh, my, my dog and the love of my life is in the background. It's not a person. It's a dog breathing heavily <laughs> in honor of poetry. Um, so, t so take me from... 
11 years old, you're in the woods, and yeah. you, you told me you're 33, the same age as, as Christ when he died. <laughs> so that's 22 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I waited, it was like another 10 years for me before a first book came along. Mm. So to tell the listener, or if the listener is out there and they want to write a first book of poetry and they're intimidated and they don't feel like they can write it or they, yeah. it feels like all the contests are rigged and there's no chance to get into them, give inspiration if you can or hope or to people that are going to listen to this that are young writers coming up and what it took for you to get from 11 on the rock in the woods or watching your mom writing uh, or knowing that your mom was writing behind a closed door um, and wanting to do that and, and coming to this moment that we're going to celebrate uh, with you reading um, two or three of these poems. Mm-hmm. I would say it's just... The poems come from good time spent with oneself. Real time spent with one's own feelings and thoughts. And that a lot of the frustration I had in trying to get this book, my book, published came from not feeling that the book was completely true to my own life. And it took a lot of, in the end, it took a lot of reorganization, um, almost as you would structurally for a a fiction work or a book of prose, Uh to make it feel like it was mine again. I sort of circled around. But as far as the practical life, um, you did you need... get a master's degree in poetry? I did. Or what did you... I yeah. did. I got a master's. Um, did you study it in college? I studied it wherever I could, whenever I could. But the real breakthrough for me was when I was 17, I was able to participate in a workshop that was full of graduate students and adults in poetry. And I did that in St. Petersburg, Russia. With nothing's uh, just run of the mill about you, is it, Soren Stockman? Not much. Okay. So that I was I was there with a program called Summer Literary Seminars. Oh, okay. Which I then um, stayed connected to for many years and ended up coordinating that conference in Vilnius, Lithuania. Where for I ran into you. Where I ran into you. That's yeah, right. Yeah. The and, land of um, my people. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge part of my development as a poet was... Being part of that group or that organization. Yes. Um Stepping into a completely new environment in which people had really dedicated themselves to poetry, to writing, to reading. Uh, They took it very seriously. They took themselves seriously. They took the conversations seriously that we had. And it just kind of, it was like going from high school to the pros kind of thing. Who have been your mentors that led up to this book? Were there particular poets that... Who are some of those people? Absolutely. Yeah, teachers of mine. 
early teachers that I had in my life when I was, I think just after I went to St. Petersburg, I was able to take a one-week poetry workshop at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown with Henri Cole. Oh, yeah, he's great. And he has always been one of my favorite poets. Was he a good teacher? He was a very good teacher. He helped me recognize in myself my own sensitivity to language. And um, I felt a kind of kinship with him, not really knowing him. You know, as a young person it's like in his a, class. Yeah. But. Just something occurred to me that um, I'm um, contemplating this long book-length lyric essay mm. about uh, why it has ties into this whole thing um, of the Red Door series and Beyond the Red Door. But exploring, you know, most poets has, that I run across um, from Marie Howe on down, Henri Cole. She's my um, next uh, mentor, yeah. Are searching spiritually, religiously, uh, but are are abhorrent to being called religious, mm-hmm. um, spiritual okay. But I, I want to really explore this question because I've reviewed about nine... Um, Poets for the American Poetry Review, mm-hmm. and in in every case there was this search for religion and spirituality, and a real pushback from organized religion. Why I'm saying this is when you're describing Henri Cole, it's like to me the apostolic succession, or when I became a priest and and the bishop laid his hands on me, and it's just this sort of when Henri with all of his talent and benevolence does that to you. It's mm-hmm. like he's he's passing on that that energy. Mm-hmm. That's very much my experience and something I find to be very true. Did, did you have to send this book out a lot before it got taken, or how did that go? No, I sent it Lucky out. Lucky duck? Well, I... Yes, I was a lucky duck. I continue to be a lucky duck. But I had sent earlier versions of the book out. Yeah. To, you know, here, there, everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I, at the time, didn't really like the book because it didn't feel like my book. It didn't feel like this is mm-hmm. what my time on Earth to this point has made of me and yeah. what I have made of it. Uh, and now the book does. And the version of the book that was taken was reorganized so that it had one section and then a middle section that is composed of a long poem in which I combined several previously distinct poems into one longer piece and then a final section. So it's sort of a triptych. Yeah, Um, it is. And once I found that organization of the book, um, it was taken pretty quickly after that. But it had been many, many years of not finding that organism, that structure. Um, and the book just not really being truly itself. And so in a way, I'm very thankful that it was not taken earlier. That is a good thing to be thankful for. Um, let's read some. And let's read three. I want you to read okay. all three of these poems and maybe I'll interject one question in between. Uh, explain the title of the book, 
and then exp- and then just whatever you need to do to set up these three poems, and we'll we'll end with with that, with your voice, with your poetry, and and hope that this reaches as many people as possible and spreads, as we would say in the church, the good news. The good news. Well, I would just say the title. The title is Elephant. Yeah. This poem. I'm excuse me. This book is forthcoming in September 2022 from Four Way Books. So that's coming. That's coming up pretty quick. Wow. So Will it be hardback and paperback? How does that go? I don't. Bel- I don't know. I don't. Uh-huh. I'm not anticipating What's a hardback. What's the cover going to be look like? Oh, the cover's beautiful. Can you reveal? I sure can. <laughs> what is what one is... of my very favorite artists, Egon Schiele? Oh, okay. Has a a painting in the public domain and thereby available to me and my lovely little book uh, called "Child in a Flower Meadow with Halo," or "Child with Halo in a Flower Meadow." Nice. One of those two, and um, it has the kind of simultaneity of opposing forces that I am drawn to. It's a a kind of, it's a figure that is either approaching or retreating, either melting into the ground or rising up out of it. It, The light is either breaking into day or closing into night. Mm -hmm. And it's all tinged with this pale, ancient feeling gold. And I just love it. Great. So that's that's going to be the cover image. And the, the title of the book, Elephant, uh, comes from a number of experiences that I have had that have been integral to my creative life. Um, the foremost of which is my experience as an actor performing the role of John Merrick in the play The Elephant Man by Bernard Pomerantz. And The Elephant Man, the play is written after the life of a a real person, Joseph Merrick, whose uh, documented life was um, remembered and and written by his doctor, Frederick Treves, in a book called The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences that I believe came out in 1923. Mm. Uh, And then another few books that were written in the 70s that were a bit more researched. but I, performing the role of John Merrick in the play, The Elephant Man, was something I did when I was in my early 20s and was struggling to connect to my own feelings and my own fears around intimacy, primarily. And what you said earlier about a spiritual journey, a religious journey... For me, a search for intimacy, not necessarily in another person, but within one within one's life, is a religious and spiritual journey. Yeah. When I am looking for tenderness, there is mm. faith that drives that persistence. Right. And poetry and performance has always been the manifestation of that faith in my life. And so when I performed the role of the Elephant Man, I was able to care for myself in ways that I struggled uh, to do as a young person. And so he became a kind of flag bearer for my better self, almost, in Mm. a strange 
yeah. surprising way. It feels like that, having read that poem. So Read some of these now. Were you going to say something else about the title? Yeah, well, that the title Elephant comes from the Elephant Man, right. um, but it also shows up in a number of other poems. Um, and oddly enough, a few people that I have loved in my life have had tattoos of elephants on their bodies. <laughs> That's oh, just a sort of added bonus. Yeah, no. I don't know. So the elephants, they arrive, mm. Mm. and I welcome them. Good. Let's welcome some of these poems into the world by having you read them. My pleasure. So the first poem in the book, which I'll now read, is called To Be Born. When I was young, I was really an old man. I remember it, delicate and spacious, aware I would become more honest, feel natural, knowing half of love is need. A serious young man, I had trouble saying yes to the bright, clear days. With what pitiful ease we could change our lives out, something else in. But the tissue holds memory we don't quite know. One night, like a boxer dropping his gloves, I answered every question immediately. Slowly, we laughed more. We were hysterical at night, and morning blew the doors open. I ate a radish, never contracted chickenpox. My singing improved, and women never stopped looking. Then my friends began to die. They passed through the beautiful old maples I watched through my window. What a blessing to love the world and then finally be born. You've memorized it. Oh my God. I memorized my poems mostly in the process of writing them. That is unusual, I believe. Um... That's beautiful, and it's just sort of like I'm hearing a little Frank O'Hara, just a little bit, and then it's like an amalgamation of sounds, I guess, and various, I mean, a lot of those lines could be coming from, I mean, like a mosaic, I guess, I'm hearing as you read it mm. right now. Um, and uh, how lovely to celebrate being born. Right? I mean... Uh, how lucky are we? Well, I think you're very prescient and you're kind of, um, you're um, un unusually perspicacious. I just used that word recently. It's not a used I word. Like I like that word. Yeah, which is like intelligent, but also maybe a little precocious because the three P words, unusual, that I just used. Um, but um, <laughs> I think because... I'm just really starting to appreciate uh, being born. I think it's come to me a little later, so mm. bravo to you. Now the next one with the title um, Morning, in, Morning in Wyoming, and I know 
a poet is talented and good when I want to steal something. And when Soren first showed me this poem title, I had to squelch the <laughs> impulse to steal that title. I would be so honored if you stole I my title. I might still do it. I'll let you oh know. Oh, my goodness. But read this. And and just say just a couple of sentences why Wyoming is... Because for me, it's a spiritual lightning rod I mean, I've, I've come to know Jackson Hole and, and other parts of Wyoming later in life yeah for me I really honestly it, it came through Annie Prue and Brokeback Mountain and seeing that movie and then I read the short story then I wrote her a note and then I went to Wyoming um, but I found the place very inspirational and and spirit I, I see God and eat God and feel God everywhere there in that place everywhere I know. Do you use the same? Absolutely. Okay. And godliness is so... There's no other word for it in Wyoming, but godliness, <laughs> yeah. When a New York City boy goes and lives beneath a mountain, yeah. it's very awe-inspiring, right? Yeah. But when I I went to the U-Cross Foundation Great in 2012, place. Great place. Uh, and that was before I went to graduate school, and that was where I was there for four weeks. Mm. And I wrote the first poems that I, to appear in this book there. And t- wrote all of the poems in this fever dream, incredible wow. burst of production um, that I've never <laughs> since replicated. Not yet, anyways. Uh, but... I was there for four weeks during the month of April. And in Wyoming, during the month of April is when spring happens. So over four weeks, I saw this hard, barren, jagged earth Mm -hmm. become bountiful and open Mm -hmm. and fragrant. And, incre- and, and incredibly beautiful, just like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I would wake up every morning so happy because I was so deep in my own heart writing these poems that I had no idea what they would become or where they would lead me to, but they felt so real to me. And that was right after I had read, for the first time, Jack Gilbert. Who is oh, who? Who is my poet? The poet yeah, in my life, good. Linda Gregg too. Woo, Linda Ooh. Gregg. I used to sit in her kitchen you and did? talk to her about poems. Oh, well, you're lucky I was man. so lucky. She lived in the East Village. I don't know if she's st- still there, but she died. She died. Oh, she's not there anymore, but she's with us Goodness. still through well, her she, poems. She never leaves. Read us this one, okay. and then we'll close with the one and talk a little, the one about your brother, and I'll just ask you a question about siblings, and then we'll, we'll close out with that. Read, read this yes. one for us. Morning in Wyoming. My whole life there have been people who have looked at me knowingly. Like the child who knows the hand pointing to the moon and not the moon itself. The corruption of faith, the downfall we surrender asunder. Each night before sleep, 
I forgive myself. At the end of each year, I forgive myself that. Death will be gorgeous. There is no love when there is nothing but love. You memorized that one too. Um, I asked you before we began the podcast, when there is love, there is, what did you say it again? There is no love when, when there is nothing but love. So in a sentence or two, can you unpack that? So much of if our life is, is longing and wanting. Uh-huh. And in order to want, you have to lack in some way. That's yeah, what probably. Want, want means that. It, there's the want of want can mean I desire or want can mean I, I want for means I lack right so yeah um, part of the glory and grace of being alive is that we churn and grind and become who we want to be and try to cultivate our our lives socially personally uh, you know not with what we do, not professionally, but what we do with our lives, what we make. Um, And there's faith in that, that we can make ourselves, that we can change our lives to be what we want them to be. Yeah. And there's love in that. Love for oneself, love for life itself, love for being in the company of others. But... Before and after our lives, there's a great space we don't quite understand, can't foresee. And in that space, we don't have to churn. We don't have to want. We don't have to grind. And when you think about that, yes, it sounds restful. But it makes you realize the great luck and blessing of wanting and lacking. of a scenario that provokes in us faith. It's a Mm. great blessing. We're very lucky. Yeah, we are Did that make sense in answer to your question? Partially. um, That love is the wanting and the lacking. mm -hmm. And so when that's there, there is... What does it say? There is no love when there is nothing but love. So when there's nothing... But love. But love. Mm-hmm. And I am ascribing love to the unknown and yes. what, what we can't see around the corner. Yeah. Without the wanting and the lacking with which love manifests in our lives... You can't have it. It won't be there. I see. There's nothing to want or lack. It just is. Okay. And that's the love that is nothing but love. Which maybe is what you find in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, now the last one. So this poem is, uh, the speaker of the poem is addressing a, a brother. And I think when I was looking at this manuscript and the various poems addressed to a brother, I guess I was just thinking, I was thinking of two modern poets, um, two modern books. I was thinking of Marie Howe and um, What the Living Do, 
uh, which is is so much of a embrace of her brother uh, John and his early death from AIDS, and the whole book is is animated by her gaze as the brother is um, dying of HIV AIDS, and uh, and also Natalie Diaz had a book called uh, My Brother as an Aztec. Mm-hmm who is suffering from drug addiction. And that book also has this power of focusing on a sibling, a brother. Um, And they both stay with me as books. And the power of talking about somebody else, other than as as a creator, a poet, what happens when I either dedicate a book or a poem or a a whole effort to a sibling. Um, I too have a sibling and I have written about that sibling and um, um, I don't I don't know if that's a question or it's just an observation or maybe here's the question. In this book, you too, just like Marie Howe and Natalie Diaz, sort of turn there's there's this turning to this brother. Is that just in the third triptych section or just yeah really he appears in the in the last part of the book right it's heavy it's it's heavy the last part of the book is heavy it's heavy on family and familial intimacy and the brother and the brother but also the mother also the father but yeah. I, it, it it leans much more so in that direction in the final section yeah and my brother has been the most important relationship in my life. Well, this comes across in this book, yeah, which I would I say probably Marie Howe and Natalie Diaz might say the same thing. So it's very compelling. And um, I don't know uh, what just, I just maybe you could just say a couple of thoughts about, about mm-hmm. why your brother is so important to you and, and what the significance of having this brother is in relation mm-hmm. to your art. And then we'll close with you reading that poem. Well, my brother is... Um, an actor, too. He's an right? actor. Um, he's like an artist. Broadway or off-Broadway. Oh, and he's... He's on Watch there. out now. Watch out. He's everywhere. But that kind of plays into this book because, you know, the whole thing about uh, John Merrick and, and the speaker of the poems being the actor that portrayed John Merrick. And there's this there's this meditation over um, acting, performing life of the person performing, what's being projected, and then what, you know, so... so yeah. yeah. Well, I followed... I began acting because I grew up watching my brother do it. And he's incredibly talented. And as Spencer mentioned, has um, performed on the biggest stages. Really? uh, Yeah. And is just an incredibly uh, powerful artist. What a family. So is he like in movies now? He just shot uh, a series for Apple TV called We Crashed about the WeWork debacle. Oh, okay. And just rapped. Um, rapped? He rapped. Uh, <laughs> literally rapped just, in a yeah. production of uh, Black No More at, yeah. done by the new group huh. that um, the book and music were written by 
black thought of the hip hop group The Roots, and it includes singing and rapping. And so he's he 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 rapped and he rapped. Uh, he rapped the show and he rapped in the show. But I followed him into performing, and so the experience of performing John Merrick and the Elephant Man yeah. was the culmination of his example, mm-hmm. um, leading me to myself. And so much of love and intimacy to me is being known, feeling known. Right. This book makes mention of that a few times. Right. And there's no one who knows you like your brother. For me, um, mm-hmm. growing up, feeling as though we have the same heart in different circumstances Mm. and knowing what that heart feels imagining what that heart feels in those circumstances was a huge component of building my own imagination and understanding empathy Mm. and bond Mm. um but there is a, a major difference between my, uh, the brother in my p- book versus the brother in either um, Marie or Natalie's book is that I, I am so fortunate. I'm the baby brother. So the baby is, is beloved in a very particular way. And I have looked for myself, for who I am, through the eyes of those who love me most. Uh-huh. And so I gaze at my brother in this book, but I also speak through him and that's look right. at myself. That's different, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is different, I think, than uh, something in Marie's, but yes, okay. But I, I, it, it's, it's a two-way street, very much so. So yeah. I, I think of him and I... I honor him and I honor more challenging moments that we've each had apart and together. And I honor um, completely incredible, ecstatic moments that we've had, he and I, together and apart. Um, Those are many of the defining moments of my life. Because two brothers is different from a brother and a sister. Those two books I named are a sister and a brother sound. A sister talking about a brother. And you're a younger brother talking about an older brother, which is kind of a particular um, dynamic and one that I know very well as the older brother who Mm -hmm. is the younger brother and um, um, I think my strongest emotion when I if you say my brother and I was going to do one of those psychological things where you have to say it would be protect uh, is the the, the immediate word uh, as the older older sibling yeah which is um, probably drove my brother absolutely nuts. But um, <laughs> I um, have that. Yeah, I carry that mantle as I well. I know it just I'm seems a... part of the deal. Something about it. Yeah. I, I, I guess if we're lucky as the older brother, we we back off and we let go and we just let that little brother fly and be in the background. Like, uh, that's yeah, just I think. I think that my my brother, who is older, and I have three brothers too, so I have older brothers um, as well. I forgot that. I didn't even know. Is that from like another? It's all the same marriage. 
No, different marriage. That's yeah. Yeah, they're older than I than my brother and I, who grew up in the same house. Right. Um, but we're all very close, and uh, but, you don't but they're not. They're not. They're not. Create. They're not as creative as yeah. my my brother and I, um, who grew up in in the same house. Um, hmm. But so there, it's. It's it's funny to feel cared for as the the youngest, but also not just in my family, but across all of my relationships, I always feel I always feel like I want to be a caretaker. Hmm. Um, it's sort of where I find a lot of my purpose. Um, in my relationships and I've learned to sort of turn that back toward myself a bit more um, rather than just looking for someone to take care of as a way of trying to take care of myself um, good move Soren. I'm, I'm trying <laughs> it's a slow grind but um, oh. learning how to love myself I am very fortunate to have had the examples of how other people love me. Um, So when it feels foreign or strange, if it ever does, I have all of these, they're they're like books I can read, you know, just Mm -hmm. thinking of these relationships and imagining um, how deeply I'm cared for and knowing that it's real and true is, again, just lucky. And I, I feel very blessed for it, but it, it, it's practically advantageous in all of these emotional ways too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, more so than just a blessing in my life. It's a, a teacher. Read this and we'll close with this and, um, congratulations on this book coming into the world. And we'll just pray that it will be received and celebrated and, Fetid, and that, uh, and and that your words will reach many. That would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> they already are. This poem is called "Elephant, My Brother, My Hand." This morning, my brother and I tell each other we are addicts. We are not resentful. We speak openly, briefly, matter-of-fact. It's not quite true anyways. He likes to fling himself into things. I prefer to hurl myself out. When he calls me from his bedroom, I know he will want to be touched. On his outstretched arm, his side, One leg crossing on his bed if I come to him, on mine if not. He orders delivery, horse over the phone, chicken lo mein. I sit on my bed and will not leave. We kill for its tusk. We don't want to kill. We tell ourselves. 
We have not had, nor have we lost, our great chances, we tell ourselves. There is authority within a space too pure for authority. We listen to it, and the words undo, themselves unstitch, don't mean too much. My kin by my side, two wandering kings, too much wandering. The first humans in the first garden had to have, had to say at some point, love's debt is to me, eyes caught on whichever heaven they saw beckon like a flare. And in my vision, the smoking gun at the end of my arm is my own hand. Say a couple. Mr. Coconut likes when we clap. It's a wrap. We wrapped.